This sermon, A Single Purpose, Part 2, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, December 5th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. There's a couple months ago where uh, I ran into Teresa McLeod. I was walking out of the gym. I think she was walking into the gym. And I asked Teresa if I could share this story, and she graciously said yes. But she was telling me about, uh, about her dog. And as you know, I'm not really a dog person, but I love hearing Teresa talk about her dog, particularly because oftentimes when she talks about her dog, she talks about how the Lord is using her dog. Now, let me explain. Teresa loves to get out and walk her dog in the neighborhood, and she shared, I'm sure that she's talked about this to you as well at times, but she shared on a number of occasions where the dog has actually been, walking the dog has actually been an, a, a means to meet people because dog people love other people's dogs, right? And so it's kind of like motorcycles. They just create a crowd. So she was just really enthusiastically sharing how, boy, the dog, I've been able to meet so many people, and I'm, I'm seeing opportunities to be able to, to share Christ, and I've always respected that about you, Teresa, and appreciate that really example for me to find some, something that you know those around you are interested in, and then to see it as an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we were done talking, she, she said this. She said, you know, I'm getting so many opportunities. but I feel like I don't know how to share the gospel. I'm getting many opportunities. I, I just I feel like I don't know how to share Christ. Can you relate to that? Have you ever felt that helpless? How do I do this? Where do I go? What do I say? When do I say it? Well, you know, as we listen in on Peter's second sermon in Acts, we learn not only that Peter is becoming quite the gospel preacher, isn't he? But we also learn how to share the gospel with precision and boldness. Now, there's no doubt that every conversation is unique. Different folks, different folks from different strokes means there, there is no cookie-cutter conversation when we are sharing Christ. People have different situations. People are, have uh, different challenges. But our text this morning, as I got into our text, I realized that it really gives us three big rocks of evangelism that belong in every conversation, regardless of whether you're trying to appeal to someone's emotions or it's much more of an apologetic conversation. You're trying to answer big questions like, how do I, why does evil exist if God is love? Whatever the conversation is, there are three, three big rocks of evangelism that belong in our Evangelism. I believe having these categories in mind, any believer in this room will be equipped to share Christ at any moment. And we need to be ready, don't we? Scripture calls us to be ready to share the gospel at any moment. And I would submit to you, especially at Christmas, there is a uniqueness about this time. There is a time when opportunities abound for a number of different Reasons. So that's, that is, we're going to look and we're going to unpack Peter's sermon and learn together what are these three big rocks of evangelism so that we can go out this Christmas season and beyond and share Christ. Amen? So would you stand with me? Let's read. We're, we're, we're actually going to begin in verse, in verse 1 for context. Uh, last week, we just looked at verses 1 through 10. But uh, the title of this sermon is A Single Purpose, Part 2. Peter continues to use this physical miracle that has everybody in awe and wonder. He continues to use it to unpack, really to preach, to illustrate 
Christ and the gospel. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leap and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. In our text this morning, while he clung to Peter and John, All the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Maybe seated, let's pray. Lord, we come to your word asking that you would fill us with your spirit so that our minds, our hearts, and our feet would praise you and bring you glory as we listen to our Savior and live in grace-fueled obedience for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, I believe there are three 
big rocks that are helpful to how we reach out and share Christ with those around us. And I'm not going to give them all the way up front, so if you're taking notes this Sunday, it is one point at a time, but the points are simple, uh, and they will be recognizable, hopefully from the text, but the first one is this, give them Jesus. Now, by way of reminder, I mentioned earlier, a spectacular miracle has just occurred. A 40-something-year-old man crippled from birth, as we learned last week, is completely and immediately, miraculously healed. And the story continues in our text. We were at the temple last week. We are still at the temple this week. As Luke tells us in verse 11, that that Peter and John and this, this Man who has been leaping and praising God, he's clinging to Peter. I don't know if he's tired from all the leaping and jumping around that he did, or if he's a little bit afraid. But Peter and John and this beggar are standing there, and Luke tells us that this crowd, in absolute amazement, begins to rush them. And it appears as they rush them that their amazement has turned from this miracle to the men of the miracle. Notice what Luke tells us in verse 12. He says, and when Peter saw it, that is the people rushing toward them, he said this. Here we go. Peter, ever the guy to explain what is going on. Men of Israel, verse 12, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The people who were amazed at the miracle were equally amazed at Peter and John. And really, as you read this story, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. After all, remember it was Peter's hand that reached out and grabbed the beggar, and it was Peter's words that said, rise up and walk. And so, if you're an onlooker by all outward appearances, Peter seems to be the hero here, doesn't he? Peter's the man. In fact, just stop and put yourself in Peter's shoes. One can imagine the temptation for Peter in this moment to act like the hero. I don't know what the people were saying, but Peter was clear. Why are you looking at us like we're the heroes? (laughs) Peter could have taken this moment, if only for a moment, to make it his moment. Thank you. I'm going to tell you what's going on here in a moment, but I just want you to know, I, I have always, I have prayed that God would use me in a big way for his kingdom. I have been praying for the gift of healing. I I, I, want to do something for God that just goes beyond my own life. And then this happened. In fact, last week I was praying. I just prayed, Lord, give me opportunity. And then he did, and I took it. You know what humble brag is? It's actually in the dictionary. It's a real thing. It's, It's where you talk about yourself in a way that kind of seems humble, but the whole point is to brag about yourself. Peter could have done some humble bragging here. He could have drawn attention to himself. He perhaps could have made something of himself. In the capital city, come bring your sick and lame and blind to Peter in the portico. He's a healer. Maybe financial gain, for sure, accolades, and reputation. But Peter resists all of that. He resists putting himself at the center, and instead he immediately preaches Christ. He immediately deflects all the attention away from himself and John, and he preaches Christ. He doesn't just 
share the gospel, but, but he, he preaches Christ in a way that was very connected and relevant to his audience, which, by the way, were primarily either Jewish or they were Greek God-fearers who really enjoyed the ethical teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they would have been familiar, even though they weren't uh, bona fide Jews, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament teachings. And Peter immediately, immediately gives them Jesus. Notice in verse 13. The God of Abraham. Why are you, why are you staring at us? The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Then he says this, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He takes them to the cross. He takes them to their forefathers. He takes them to the cross. And then notice down in verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Notice in verse 21, he says, or verse 22, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Verse 24, he says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. He refers to Abraham in verse 25 and the great promise to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Redemptive history in the Old Testament was prophetic in nature. What I mean by that is beginning in Genesis 3.15 with the promise that the head of Satan would be crushed by the seed of Eve, that is Christ defeating Satan at the cross and the empty tomb, everything in the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus. And what Peter does here is beginning with Abraham, Peter connects the name of, of the one this man was healed by, Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom he just invoked power in the name of Jesus. Peter connects that name to God's Old Testament promise, which most of these people in this audience would have been quite familiar with. He says from Abraham to Moses to Samuel to David, he is showing the continuity between all that has been promised to what has now been fulfilled and to what has just happened. You'll notice Peter's reference to Jesus uh, in verse 13 is God's glorified servant. And then in, in verse 14, he refers to Jesus as the holy one and, and the righteous one. Both of those being very powerful messianic terms. Peter is, in a sense, he's, he's putting a puzzle together for them. And the finished picture is Jesus. Jesus is the point to all the pieces here. He is at the center of God's revelation and redemption. Peter is giving this crowd. He is helping them to connect the dots between all that they've learned from the scriptures and all that they have anticipated and look, looked forward to and saying, this is the one. Forget about the miracle. Forget about the man who's leaping and jumping around the temple courts. 
This is about not me, not my buddy John. This is about Jesus, the one that all things have been, has been moving toward, the one that all of history is oriented around. The point is this. The hero of the gospel isn't you and I. It wasn't Peter in this moment. It wasn't the healed man. The hero of the gospel is Jesus. And so we must give the world around us Jesus. Just as Peter does here. Peter doesn't talk about his experience at Pentecost. What that meant to him or how it made him feel. He didn't talk about the second chance that Christ gave him after he denied him three times. He pointed that, listen, there's nothing wrong with our personal testimonies. There's nothing wrong with sharing how Christ has transformed our lives. But remember, we are not the hero of the gospel. We are the beneficiaries of the gospel. Jesus is. And Brett, Brett a few weeks ago asked a great question. He says, what do you give people instead of Christ? I want to build on that good and relevant question by saying this. I think in evangelism, we need to talk about ourselves less and show people Jesus more. Would you agree with that? It's so easy to talk about me and all that Jesus has done in my life. It's so easy for me to talk about what my life is like now. And I can spend an hour at Starbucks with an unbeliever, and they know me really well, but they still don't really have any idea who this Jesus is. <laughs> I'm their friend now, but they have no idea who this Jesus is. And I want to take it a little bit further. I would also submit that we should talk about ourselves less and show people Jesus more from this book right here, from the Bible. That, that, that's, that's what is happening here. Peter isn't just talking anecdotally. He is pointing them to Scripture. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's drawing their attention to the forefathers of the faith. He, he, is, he is, we're going to see this in Acts. There's a pattern here in Acts where, 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 where people are, their witness was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was centered on Jesus, and it was rooted in the acting, or in the acting, in the active living, piercing word of God. Jesus set this example for us ourselves, didn't he? Himself. The road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Where did Jesus go? Jesus himself went to the scriptures to show, here's who I am. I wonder at times if we just talk. It's one thing to tell people about Christ, and certainly we are called to. It's another thing to show them Jesus. Look, let me read this. What do you think that means? And connect the dots in God's word. Listen, I, I, I want to I offer us a, a challenge in the new year. In all of our Bible study, whether it's personal or, or we're meeting up with people at Starbucks, we love to do Bible studies. Let me ask you this. In all your Bible studying, are you studying the Bible with an unbeliever right now? Not just talking to an unbeliever. Are you studying 
the Bible with an unbeliever. I'm not. I would dare say most of us probably aren't. There is a denomination that I have plenty of disagreements with theologically, but one thing they do well is they sit down with unbelievers and they take them through the scriptures to show them that all of history is going somewhere and Jesus is at the center of it. And in the hands of the spirit, the word of God is powerful. So I want to encourage you, if you've never read this book, it's called One-to-One Bible Reading. It's a great little book, and it will help you just in reading the Bible yourself personally, but there's also a chapter in here about how to read the Bible with someone who isn't a Christian. In fact, it walks you through the gospel of Mark. You want to equip yourself to sit down with your neighbor who maybe you've been talking about Jesus and sharing your testimony and you're setting a good example, but maybe the next step is, I'm going to sit down with the word of God with them. I'm going to ask them, would you be willing to study the Bible with me? And this is a, this is a small tool that can help you do just that. The hero of the gospel isn't you and I. It's Jesus. So let's give them Jesus. Let's talk about ourselves less. And let's open up God's word. I, 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 boy, what would be the impact if every week there were half a dozen, dozen people in this church meeting up with an unbeliever at wherever and just opening up God's word? Just going through the Gospel of John. This book actually goes through the Gospel of Mark. I wonder how God might bring a, a, a revival of unbelievers into our midst. Give them Jesus. Second, call them to repentance and faith. Call them to repentance and faith. It's, it's hard to tell someone that they are guilty of something, isn't it? it, it, it it's, it's hard enough telling a fellow believer, uh, let alone telling your unbelieving neighbor that you have to live next to every day, that they are living in sin and that something needs to change in their life. It's offensive. And we live in a world where you, you don't dare offend anybody, Right? Watch what you say. You have no right to offend anyone. You have no right to tell me something that I don't agree with. You have no right to tell me that I'm wrong. But the gospel is offensive, isn't it? Because that's exactly what it tells us. It says, Derek, you're wrong. And literally, there's hell to pay if you don't get it right. But the truth is, I think that's one of the reasons why, just, I think this is one of the toughest aspects of our evangelism. And therefore, I think it's a step that we tend to leave out. Now, some of that might be a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of God's sovereignty, right? We're reformed, we're well-grounded in God's sovereignty. Well, they're going to get saved, God will save them. I'm going to tell them about Jesus, and I'm not going to challenge them. God, God will save them if he's going to save them. True, but that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that we are to call people to faith in Jesus, to repentance before the throne of God. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture... No one has promised salvation apart from repentance and faith. No one. In fact, Jesus made that clear at the outset of his ministry. Remember what he said in Mark 1? He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, I would submit to you that we must, with humble courage, call people to faith and repentance as Jesus did. And just as Peter does in our text this morning, look at verse 16. Peter says, and his name, after connecting the, after connecting the gospel dots, 
He says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Now listen, we know the immediate context here is healing. And I would submit this faith was probably Peter's faith, not the lame man's faith. But remember the big picture. What is Peter doing here? He's not ultimately celebrating a healing. He's connecting the dots of a physical healing to the gospel. He's preaching and illustrating a deeper spiritual truth. And so as it relates to salvation, the point here is have faith in this one. Have faith in the name of Jesus. Believe in Jesus, or as I just said, as Peter said, have faith in his name. I love what John Piper says. He says, the name of Jesus, if you're wondering what, what do you mean have faith in his name? I think we're supposed to have faith in his person, his work. I love what John Piper says. The name of Jesus stands for the reality of Jesus. To have faith in the name of Jesus is to believe all that is true about Jesus, that, that he is who Scripture says he is, and he did all that Scripture says he did, particularly what he did in his perfect life of righteousness and his sin-atoning death at the cross and his ultimately sin-defeating triumphant resurrection from the grave. This really is what we're celebrating at Christmas, isn't it? Christmas is, we see this text. This is a Christmas text. (laughs) The prophets foretold, we sung about it this morning. So Peter said, oh, all your forefathers are prophets, they foretold that one would come, that he would suffer. He would be God's glorified servant, and that all must listen to him or perish. And he came. God incarnate came to us to save us, and Peter gives us the pathway. Faith in the name of Jesus is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. To believe he's the savior of sinners, God incarnate, born in a manger, come to save sinners in a fallen world, and that he accomplished that saving work in his death and resurrection. Now notice, Peter also calls the crowd to repentance. Calls him to faith. And then in verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's done. So, repent, therefore. Turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Peter's already pointed out their sin in verses 13 through 15. He uses the word deny numerous times, and at the heart of their sin is denying Jesus. They denied the Christ. Twice, Peter accuses them of denying Jesus. In fact, they, they chose life for a murderer, and they murdered the author of life. That's at the heart of sin, denying God. All sin It isn't merely an offense against God. Sin is a denial of Christ in some way. Whether it's a single event in a day, whether it's with a secret thought, or it's a lifestyle, sin rejects Christ for something else. And we're all guilty of that. So Peter helps us here. Repentance, he even uses the phrase, turn, 
Repentance is turning away from denying Christ, turning away from our sin to believing in Christ. And believing, believing is more than mere mental assent to a a set of facts about someone. It's a personal trust. It's a rest in Christ alone for the removal of your sins and a righteousness that satisfies the glory of God. And that's faith. The people who will be baptized this morning by the grace of God have determined in their mind and heart that they need a Savior and that Christ is their only Savior. And he is a sufficient Savior. And so we see this faith and repentance. And, and in this way, though, even the way Peter put in this way, faith and repentance are really two sides of the coin that we like to call conversion. They're the two sides of the coin that we call conversion. As we turn away from our sin, as we turn away from self and we turn to Christ by the grace of God and only in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is faith. I think it was Thomas Watson who put it this way. Faith and repentance are the two wings of the bird that fly us into heaven. Faith and repentance, they, they go together. I don't want us to miss an opportunity here because there is, there's a moment in this text that gripped my heart this week where I thought, that is amazing grace. Notice verse 19 again. Repent, therefore, and turn again. And then look what he says. Pay attention that your sins may be blotted out. <clears throat> that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out means wiped away, gone. No more. I thought about my own life here this week. When I was young, didn't know Christ, I went out and did a lot of stupid things, but one particular stupid thing, I got caught. And according to the law of the land, what I did was a felony. And so I wound up Spending some time in jail. I wound up with a big restitution bill to pay. I wound up with a parole officer. My attorney negotiated a deal where if I kept myself free from any trouble with the law for five years, and when you're 19, five years is a long time. And for me to keep myself out of trouble with the law when I was 19, that was a tall, tall order. Nonetheless, somehow by the common grace of God, it happened. But the deal was that if I could stay out of trouble, this felony that would affect my entire life, it mean I could, couldn't do certain things that I otherwise could do. Try and get in the job when you got a felony on your record. If I could stay clean for five years, the felony would be, and the legal word I remember used in the paperwork, expunged from the record. Expunged. Of course, I was a stupid kid. I said, what does that mean? He says, well, in essence, it means that it will be as if it never happened. It won't show up on your record. 
nobody will know that it was ever there. And I thought, it's going to be a long five years, but we got to do this. Blotted out. Gone from the record. Here's where grace rushes in to Peter's sermon and our evangelism as we call people to repentance and faith. Listen, in verse 17, Peter acknowledges they acted in ignorance. He said that. Did you notice that? It almost seems like he's given them a break. Everything that you did in verses 13 through 15, I know you acted in ignorance, but it doesn't matter. Ignorance is not a defense. Ignorance is no excuse. And it will be no defense in the heavenly courtroom. Why? Because God is holy. And these people were sinners. And so justice must be done. They still need to repent. And when they do, they still need to repent. And guess what? They can still repent. And when they do, their sins will be blotted out. In this context, Peter is saying, listen, you can scream. And for these people, some of them literally scream. For us, figuratively, with our lives, crucify him. Who does he say he is? The king of the Jews? Crucify him. Kill him. Get rid of him. Blot him from the face of this earth. Crucifixion? I know it's horrific. Do it to him. Some of these folks may have been there. May have been at the trial. Some of these folks may be the ones who said, give us Barabbas the murderer. And here's Peter. He says, repent. And your sins will be completely forgiven. Blotted out. Expunged. From the heavenly record. This is why Psalm 103 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And it's why, just two verses before that, he says, He does not treat us according to what our sin deserves. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because. By faith. We are made one in Christ. And all our sin, past, present, and future, is gone. Derek Thomas says, it is possible to crucify Jesus and be forgiven. That's amazing grace. That's undeserved mercy. That's why Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many. And as we call the unbelievers around us humbly yet courageously and boldly to faith and repentance, we make sure that they know that God forgives completely, fully, that their sins because of the blood of Christ that poured from Calvary will be expunged from the record. Listen, if you are doubting your salvation this morning, we all do at times. Can I just say, let this word be an encouragement to you this morning. If you have set your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ Recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior. What Romans 10 says, he will save you. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Stop doubting and start focusing on what Christ has accomplished for you and allow it to rule your life every single day. Third thing, Peter, we learned from Peter, we're go quickly through this one because I, 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 I am way behind. <laughs> Can we do a part three? Give them Jesus. Call them to faith and repentance and then tell them why the gospel is relevant. After connecting the dots here between Jesus and the past, Peter connects the dots to Jesus in the future. Look at verse 19. He says, repent therefore and turn back that. And then, and then what Peter does is he goes on to identify three blessings of faith and repentance. The first one he says, he says that your sins may be blotted out. We've talked about that. But then he says too, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then three, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration all, for rest, restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Times of refreshing. Time for Rest, restoring. What, what does Peter have in mind here? I submit to you that he has the return of Christ and his kingdom in mind. He has heaven in mind. He has the place scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21 says that God's people will live in the presence of God and Christ in his perfect kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth where all of creation, not just sinful souls, but all of creation will be fully restored. It's a kingdom where Jesus, God's glorified servant, verse 13, will rule and reign in all righteousness. It's a kingdom alluded to in the lame man's healing who is now healed but one day we will be fully and finally healed, body and soul. It's a kingdom abundant in blessings that are unfathomable to our human minds and limited imaginations. It's a, it's a kingdom of eternal refreshing. The, the, the original word for that phrase, time of refreshing, is simple. Rest. That's what it means in the Greek. Rest. Relief. Heaven will be the place of ultimate rest and relief as this fallen world and the burdens of sin and trials and suffering are no more. But above all, it's a kingdom where all who, by the grace of God and the power, the regenerating power, of the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus. We'll see him. <clears throat> face to face. By the way, in case you didn't know, Jesus is still fully human and will always be. It's a kingdom where we will touch him and talk with him and adore him and share in his glory before the throne of God above. Finally, experiencing the fullness of our salvation as we see and savor Jesus that this world is ignorant of even today. People are walking through the stores. Christmas carols declaring the king has come. God incarnate with his people. And they are ignorant of the very thing they're listening to. They set up cute manger scenes under their tree. And they have no idea. They are ignorant. They have no idea what blessings of heaven 
living in the presence of the Lord will bring. Oh, what a day that day will be. But I also submit to you that the abundant blessings of salvation aren't merely future. In Christ, we live in in what the scholars call the, the now but not yet. In other words, in this life, we get a taste of heaven. When we come together like this, we are getting a taste of heaven. We are getting a taste of what Hebrews 12 describes as the host of angels celebrating around the throne of God. The, the healing of this crippled man, in a sense, was a foretaste of heaven where all will be made right and whole. And from our, from our hearts to our affections to our thoughts to our physical movement, we will be as God created us originally to be and even more glorious because we will be that in the presence of the lamb that was slain. Today, we, we experience times of refreshing, don't we? Rest and relief in the presence of the Lord, the Spirit of God who comforts us, empowers us, and refreshes us in our identity in Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is relevant. For today but ultimately for that day that is coming. To be able to stand before the throne of God with our sins blotted out, with the imputed righteousness of Christ in our account. And God says, come in, good and faithful servant. People need to know this. People need to know what's ahead. People are hopeless today. They're looking for something today. They are looking for the meaning of life. They are looking for the purpose of life. That's why philosophy exists. People know something's wrong. They just don't know what. And in verse 22, he says this. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, that is Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. See, the gospel matters. It's relevant because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. Listen, it's Christmas. Christmas brings unique opportunities to share the gospel, doesn't it? By the grace of God and for the glory of Jesus, let's forget about ourselves Let's give them Jesus. Let's call them to faith and repentance, humbly but courageously. And let's tell them why it matters. The rest is up to the Spirit of God who can do what only God can do. Save sinners.